what is success? That's the fundamental question here. And we measure success as a benchmark to what car we drive, whether we've got, you know, as nice a house as the neighbor or all of those things. There's some proper self-help guidance. But you still, you still find yourself benchmarking. It's so deeply ingrained. And that's, I mean, that's the bigger question is to try and dismantle all of that. And the way to do that is to absolutely change the way we raise, raise kids. Welcome to Self-Centred. It's a real honour to have you with me today. My guest for you is award-winning Sunday Times columnist and author Matt Rudd. His book, Man Down, Why Men Are Unhappy and What We Could Do About It, looks at reframing toxic masculinity and how it doesn't serve any of us. It's really urgent given the rising cases of male suicide and depression, but if you are a female listener, fear not. This episode is definitely for you too. We're all interlinked and dependent. Mothers have sons, wives go out to work like never before, and the pressures of the modern family unit are very real for a lot of us. And I love the way that Matt's just not the big I am. He's been truly open and vulnerable about his struggles, and is just trying to work everything out like the rest of us. Funnily enough, it's this unassuming approach that he takes, which sees him put in the yards to really get to the bottom of this complex issue and produce something which I found is of real value. He's interviewed a whole host of men over a two year period from different walks of life. And I think he's found some important lessons that we can apply to our lives right away. I think at its heart, his message is for all of us to get out of autopilot. He talks about readdressing our processes, our values, what we're told at school onwards about being a success, impressing others, as he puts it, being a completer finisher, as if there is no reward in the journey, only the outcome. And it's refreshing, isn't it, to be given permission to be kinder to yourself and to move the goalposts in on what success looks like. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you do too. And I started by asking Matt what purpose means to him. This question was mentioned by your producer and I immediately started panicking about it because, as hopefully you'll have got from the book, I don't really have very clear answers to very big questions because, <laughs> for me at least, and a lot of the men I've spoken to over the last couple of years, life is a, is a mess. I did think about it, though, and for me, purpose is whatever's left after you've stripped away all the other stuff that is required of you as a man. So the whole of our existence up until the point where I'm at now, 45 years old, is just always trying to tick boxes, climb ladders, get to places, achieve things, keep up with the Joneses, all of those things. And then you reach this point as I did, Right in the middle of life, how predictable, where you suddenly realise that a lot of the stuff that you were pursuing wasn't, wasn't really helping you, and there you are a bit miserable. So you have to get rid of all of that, and whatever's left is your purpose. And I haven't got a clue what that is at the moment. That will be book two. Now, that is a great plug, if ever I heard one. That is, get, <laughs> wait for that book. That's got all the answers. What really struck me reading your book is that I love that you are giving us permission. And I don't think, you know, my producer, who's, who's Emma, a, a girl, she said, you know, this, this is as much for me as it is for you as a man. And I completely agree with that. It's called man down, but it could be called human down because obviously we're so interlinked and broadly united as a species, of course. And I really like the idea that you're giving us that, you can't have it all, but actually, you know, this idea of perfection or, or as you say, climbing ladders, this YouTube, social media, I've got it all brigade, it's outliers. And actually, when you realise that what you actually need to do to have it all, whatever that means, is just move the goalposts, that's quite interesting. So I wanted to just delve into what you just said a little bit before we, and maybe it helps with a bit of research and development for your second book. 
But I want to start by talking about failure because you talked about, you know, passing the test, gaining a notch on that sort of man-made, it is a man-made invention, a career, you know, a career ladder. What is failure? Is failure not going up that notch or is failure working two-thirds of your week in a job that two-thirds of people don't like, we know statistically? It's a really interesting question. I, for me, I think failure would be to, and you've got to remember, I'm looking at this so specifically from a midlife perspective. Failure would be to keep your head down and keep soldiering on through it, to never really stop and engage with what you're really feeling. And to rock up in the, the, you know, the sunny uplands of later life, having never really had a moment to think about whether the hamster wheel that you're in is the right wheel. And that's, I say that with the, the very big caveat that to me, a lot of self-help gurus say this sort of thing. And they've said it on your podcast as well. And I, I can understand why they say it. They say, you, you know, if you're not stopping and engaging and changing the goalposts as you say then that's that's a failure and you can do that but the problem i think for midlifers is you've reached a point where you don't have very much wriggle room it doesn't you know someone says live every day like your hair's on fire change career you know it's all very dramatic stuff but as a a midlife person possibly with kids and a ridiculous mortgage and all of those things the idea of making big changes is completely ridiculous so i think a lot of people do pick the easier option which is to just soldier on and statistically you will be happier in your 60s than you were in your 40s but that's kind of depressing because these are supposed to be the best years of your life you know you've you have achieved a lot of the people i spoke to in that book were on paper successful you know they'd done everything that they'd been told they had to do they had all the stuff they ticked all those boxes but they were miserable so their option was to soldier on or to do something more dramatic in that sort of self-help mode and that's why most of us choose not to to be positive though i think you're right it is moving the goalposts you don't have to do anything dramatic and actually, since I wrote the book, I feel like I've become happier and therefore less likely to fail because I've just made small adjustments to my life and I've changed the way I think about things. It's still completely a work in progress. You're way ahead of me on this, Rome. No, actually, funnily enough, this book has come exactly the right time for me because I'm one of those type A exactly the, the type that will will suffer most from the system you know i'll try and prove myself i'll try and always be showing that i'm worth something and actually where i've got to and it may be partly to do with lockdown but i picked up your book last week and i devoured it and i've written all over it i mean i'm sorry <laughs> to your publisher and you know it's a lovely front cover but i've written even on the front cover i've written midlife crisis discuss for me personally, you're giving me permission to interrogate this. I, I wrote a sort of subtitle to your book, which is Get Out of Autopilot, which I feel sums up a lot of, you know, we default to this setting. And as someone who questions everything like me, I, I'm as big a culprit of that as anyone. And, and to me, this came at, at, at the right time because I, I'm under pressure and I, I admit it. You know, I run a business. I have two kids under four. Our sleep's disturbed a lot. I'm really driven to do this podcast because it means something to me and it's, I feel it's really aligned to my values. But in doing that, I hadn't noticed how much I was laddering up again. And actually reading your book and having that idea that there's another way. You don't need to be a mammal with a digital innovation business that's working with all these highfalutin clients. You don't need to be working with I love the thing in your book about the highest number of psychopaths is in prison okay yeah second <laughs> second highest <laughs> is CEOs and managers and I work with those people and I'm not ashamed to say 
you're dead right. The machoism, the kind of bullying, it doesn't serve and people are suffering. And I'm, I, you know, this, this book has made me wake up to the fact that the model of working that I'm doing, the model of living is actually not serving me. And I'm being squished, even though on the surface, I'm someone who's talking about these things and might seem like I'm ahead. Two things I love. I just want to thank you for another couple of things, and then I'll close the love in. This is great. We can do this. We can do this for the whole episode. I'm happy with that. This is all I really need to cure my midlife misery. Just someone saying nice things. Although, of course, external validation is a terrible trap to fall into. But but don't let me stop you. Off you go. Well, we'll we we need to talk about external validation. Absolutely, but. The two things, and by the way, we can do this weekly, Matt, as your kind of pep for the week. We can do it Monday mornings. The first thing is thank you for not putting those boxes at the end of your chapters, like you see in self-help books, because I think the word self-help gets devalued. We all need to be in the business of self-help. The problem is a lot of it's really naff. Your book is really open and honest, and it doesn't have the solutions. And I think that's you say that across the book. It has prompts but it doesn't have this is the thing you need to do get up an hour earlier and and da, 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 da. so thank you for that the second thing i wanted to thank you for is also calling out the whole self-help system we can't have lots of people and maybe i was gravitating towards this we can't have lots of people who give up a first career <laughs> and their second career is telling people to give up a first career and this is how and this is why it really worked right so thank you for that thank you for writing the most unique self-help book that really did help based on that where are you going with this what's your personal value system that's driving you now now you've moved towards it and you've realized the emperor wasn't wearing any clothes where are you pushing now so you're looking for answers now that's <laughs> that's the that's the whole problem and actually i was talking i did to... prime you a bit i did <laughs> yeah. i did fluff you up a bit right <laughs> i was talking to my wife harriet this morning about your purpose question and i gave her my answer of of it's what's left when you've stripped everything else away and she's further along in her journey than i am and she got quite angry as she has been over the last couple of years saying that's not an answer you're just you're just describing negatives. I think, and this whole process has been, for want of a less cheesy word, organic. I, I started writing this sort of thing almost by accident for my newspaper, and then it kind of evolved into what is now becoming a bit more of a like almost a man circle. I've been to men's circles, and they're terrifying things. These are you know men meeting and talking to each other about stuff which is serious which is very bizarre no banter no jokes nowhere to so, hide yeah and so it what started as an article in a, in a magazine that evolved into a book has taken on i suppose purpose if you will because it is it's really astonishing to me that men do find it so difficult to talk about this stuff and you started by saying that the book would appeal to Emma, to women. It applies, sorry, not appeal, applies as much to them, which is absolutely true that we are all facing all the same challenges, but men really do struggle to talk about these things. So I don't think it would be right for me to come up with a list of answers, as I repeatedly say, and as you, you pointed out. but. The thing that helped for me was firstly to realize that it's not just me. I'm not some weirdo waking up in the middle of the night with all these problems and everyone else is making a much better deal of it. We're all in exactly the same boat to varying degrees. Uh, so it's a huge relief to realize that. And then secondly, to just be thinking about it is, and that's what I would urge your listeners to do is to just think about it. We, we started off with your woo-woo 30 seconds of silence at the start of this, and you were quite apologetic about it. And I've started doing that. I do forest bathing, as it's annoyingly called. I go for a walk in the woods, no phone, no podcast to listen to. And 
the first few times I tried that, it was a complete nightmare. I didn't have anything to distract me. And I started this kind of catastrophizing, worst case scenarioing. And I couldn't block these thoughts out. And the first time I tried it, I didn't do it again for a few weeks. And then I forced myself to do it again and again. And now it is much more of a kind of mindful experience where I can chase these circular thoughts out, which is a very long and rambling answer to your very sensible question. <laughs> but yeah, with no answer, as usual. Well, actually, I'm going to pick you up there because I think you do offer some answers in your book and I've picked some out. I think you talk a lot about the stuff that I completely agree with is this idea of, of needing a reboot, a complete reboot. So the way we look at success and failure, and you've talked about that, we've created this system and this altar of, of being impressive. And I, I love the way you talk about impressive to who, you know, who are we trying to impress upon? I think that's a very actionable thing that once you've given yourself permission to say, actually, there are things in these accepted norms in this system that don't agree with me personally and maybe collectively, I can then say, I don't need to be impressive in that way. I don't need to, to bow at that altar anymore. I think your point about planning is crucial in that. How do we plan to do that? You can't just overnight when you've been, in, in our case, we're mid 40s and we've been indoctrinated in a system, if you like, you do need to plan. And I did a piece for my Designer Life to Thrive and they're just short five to 10 minute pieces where I asked my audience uh, to just plot out their values on an A4 bit of paper, just literally start writing and don't censor, don't edit, and then take the ones that, that's, that land and, and, and almost spreadsheet them. Values, actions, what am I doing today? Are they aligned? And I think both of those points build into another thing which I wanted to ask you about, which is your concept of this completer finisher, which is hard-baked into this system from school, as you talk about, you know, throughout our careers, we have to finish. That's the thing that's rewarded. And actually, I'm very interested in a lot of kind of writing from, from a long time ago. And the Tao is about inaction, not just sitting around, but rather doing things mindfully and being in this thing flow, which is very trendy now. But all it means is don't be impulsive. And I feel like that contradicts this complete finisher model where we almost have to be this sort of impulsive machine that's forever getting prodded by digital devices or line managers or whatever it is. So I'd love you to talk just in that context of planning, rebooting, not being a complete finisher about that a bit. Your point about the pressure to be impressive, I think, is key to all of this. And in more simple terms, to always be progressing. As I say in the book, it's quite hard if you are not climbing a ladder, certainly in a large organization, if you are not showing aspiration to be promoted or to take on more responsibility, you are seen and you, it's very easy to see yourself as someone who's blocking that ladder. You know, if you're just stuck there doing the same job year in, year out, that is something to be suspicious of. And I think on a personal level, it is possible to change the way you think about that. But I think it would take a, a whole dramatic change in the way organizations work for people who are not constantly aspiring to, to be more impressive, for those people not to be viewed with suspicion. That's kind of how I started thinking about it and myself. As, as I say, I kind of felt like I'd reached a bit of a plateau at my newspaper. But actually, what then happens is you start being fearful. And fear is not an attractive, it's not a productive emotion to emit. And I've spent the last two years trying not to be fearful. So you're doing all of the mindfulness things and you're working on your flow and you're practicing positive inaction, all of those things. But the biggest thing for me is to kind of jettison all of that, the voice in your head saying, if you're not impressive, then other people aren't going to find you impressive. And if you can jettison that, 
then all those things that you thought might come to pass, I suspect, I might be horribly wrong if we if people go from this and stop trying or stop being fearful and they all get fired, then I apologize. But for me, certainly, uh, I think telling myself all those negative things that, you know, the flip side of success is failure, all of those things, just getting rid of all that has actually made me certainly a happier person, which after all is the point of all of this. Whether or not I will be a more successful person, in quotes, is is up for debate, but who cares, frankly? And su- success, in quotes, goes with our failure, in quotes. You know, this, right. is, this is almost the redrawing of the, of the goalpost, or moving the goalpost into a place that serves us rather than we are serving it. I think... Right. Well, I mean, what, yeah. what, is, what is success? That's, that's the fundamental question here. And absolutely, we measure success as a benchmark to, you know, what car we drive, whether we've got as nice a house as the neighbor or all of those things. And it is so obvious and so boring, really, to talk about it. The idea that you should not benchmark your success by those things. But I still do it. Even now, having spent two years on this limbing book, I still, you know, if someone achieves something at work or someone goes on some flashy holiday, don't have three children. There's some proper self-help <laughs> guidance. <laughs> but you still you still find yourself benchmarking. It's so deeply ingrained. I mean, that's the bigger question is to try and dismantle all of that. And the way to do that is to absolutely change the way we raise kids, get rid of all the gold stars for good behavior. But that's a bigger thing. Well, funnily enough, this is this is a kind of lockdown story written all over it, but I was walking with my friend in the woods uh, on, uh, on, on Sunday and he said to me something about this. I'm just thinking about your holidays in you know, camping, which by the way, I'm all for regardless <laughs> of, of, of lockdown or not. He said, memories are not made on leather seats. Memories are made on those nasty, you know, I, my dad had a Renault 4, I think, or 16 when I was growing up, you know, those, the, the, the sort of cloth yeah. seats. And his point was, you don't need stuff to make memories with kids. You need to do stuff. So going, driving, we had a camping holiday this summer, which my wife still hasn't forgiven me for, <laughs> because I thought it was a good idea to get a camper van, hire a camper van and put two under fours in it with us. What could go wrong there? But my kids still talk. My, my my eldest talks about it still. You know, and normally... they're not they're not saying to you, <laughs> Daddy, why didn't we go to the Maldives? <laughs> Presumably, no. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, we we were in Wales this summer and in a tent during a Force Nine gale, and the entire campsite <laughs> packed up and left when the farmer came round and said. I suggest you tie your tents to the picnic tables tonight. It's going to be a strong one. They all left. We had a vote, the, the, my three sons and my wife. She was outvoted. We stayed. And, I, and you're absolutely right. They, they'll talk about that for years. So really, that's a very useful thing to have come out of this podcast. Go to Wales when the weather's bad. <laughs> there you are. Yeah, and hire, yeah, hire a van even when your kids don't sleep. Great idea. Basically, the, one one moving bedroom that you're all going to sleep in for a week. Horrific. But, yeah, uh, but the, I suppose the the serious point is, it sounds so obvious to say that, but to move away from material things is actually really tricky, and it's and it hasn't been helped by technology, which is just the the need to constantly update and upgrade and we're slaves to all of that and even when i try very hard to step away from it all it's i still find myself falling for a lot of traps let's i want to get to digital because you talk about that in your book um and it's obviously a big cloud that's looming over all of us and and certainly for ourselves but also i know you've got teenagers we worry about our kids in the future with digital and what's happening to them so i want to get to that but just before we move on from this idea of moving the goalposts you do have some practical advice on that as well which really (laughs) go on then yeah well you talk about two part-time jobs one income 
you can't get more much more practical than that. And I wanted to pick that out because if you've got two part-time jobs, and obviously I've, I want to get to how we pay for all this in a moment, but if you've got two part-time jobs accruing the same income, say, as one who went out being the breadwinner, you've got the potential to do more of the things that matter to you, whether that's family, seeing your kids, walking, nature, whatever it is, you can prioritize those other values because you've got more time in your day. You're not just vanishing off for 50 hours a week. You've got a better safety net because you're not just putting all your eggs in the basket of one parent to be the breadwinner. That's pretty practical advice. I I have to ask you how it's practical in terms of giving people advice, but how practical do you think it is in people taking that advice? I, I said that with some caution in a wider point about how at the moment we're still quite patriarchal about asking for flexible working. It's still much more women who are asking for it than men. It's still, you, do, you rarely see men asking their employer, oh, I've got young children, I'd like to work four days for the next couple of years. It is changing and there are some companies that are being much more advanced in allowing men to make those requests. You know, we still have ridiculously short paternity leave and then it's still frowned upon or we think it's frowned upon for a man to say, can I leave work at three o'clock on Tuesdays for school pickup? We then move on to the kind of in an ideal world, both people in, involved in the parenting would make some concession. One, one of them would not be working for five days. Whether it's practical or not, I don't know, because what, what happened with, and I'm getting into tricky territory, and it's very dangerous to make huge gender assumptions, but when women started coming into the workplace more and the, the concept of the double income family became more common, there was a huge pop up in house prices. You can see the two graphs together. So house prices went up, mortgages went up, rent went up, and we've now got to a position where very hard to, to own a house unless both people are working. So that, that was clever, wasn't it? And Elizabeth Warren, the failed presidential candidate this time around, wrote a brilliant paper warning about the double income trap, which we've all fallen into. So I'm definitely not going to sit here and say, hey, guys, the way to be happy is for you both to work part time, because that is something that requires a huge amount to work towards. Something that I'm getting nearer to, I'm at the point where we've cut, cut our costs, reduced the way we do things. And my wife is working part-time. So there is a, you know, there's the possibility that I can, I can certainly take more time off. And certainly I, I'm not the last one in the office anymore. So as you say, planning, it makes anything possible, I think. It is the elephant in the room, isn't it? You know, we live in a system of bills, overheads. I mean, I call it a tax for living, which it is. It's, you know, we are here, we consume, the, the system is set for us to consume, be consumers. And it's hard to prioritize, you know, these things that we talk about values, purpose, when you are, you need to pay this huge mortgage. Sasha was on recently, she's behind the startup Olio, which is a food sharing startup. And she talks about just finding, instead of worrying about man-made accepted norms, just find what your patch of land looks like and what you need to live for your values and almost tend to that. And I kind of talk about this entrepreneur model where we look at the values that we've lost through industrialization of, you know, living and working with family, community. I know you talk about that in your book and kind of valuing that and not going for the big things we're told we want, but just working out what I need. And a lot of that is, as you've just put it, you know, going through the family spreadsheet and cutting out the extraneous and only at that point do you have any choice because obviously before that you don't have the opportunity to and and we have to say younger people as well they are straddled with high 
you know, house prices and a difficult environment for getting work. So it is very, very challenging. But I think you're right. It starts with it starts with values. What are, what's important to me? Do more of that. And actually what I found, and I don't know about you, but a lot of the things I really enjoy are getting rained on in Dorset. You know, it's it's mm. camping rather than going to some swanky family resort in Greece. I actually enjoy that more. And once you start to reframe that, then you can start with that. That passage that we're talking about where I was saying we need to change the structure of work and rethink work-life balance, all of those oft-debated things. I, I wrote that before this year. You know, it was I, I finished that chapter in February back when there was slight mutterings about something odd going on in China. And I wrote it almost as a pipe dream, to be honest. You know, we need to completely change, A, the way we raise kids, B, the way we structure work. And then suddenly this, you know, everything stopped. And I found myself from one week where I was working five days a week and commuting 14 hours a week uh, and never really being home in time for dinner, I found myself working from home and homeschooling three boys. And talk about grass is greener. Those first few weeks were horrific. <laughs> I was ready, you know, I was ready to write a book about how we absolutely need to return to a patriarchal system <laughs> where where men leave and don't come back till the end of the day. But man up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's go back. Uh, this is horrific because Harriet works for the NHS. So she was, we were applauding her off to work, and I was left with the full, you know, the full opposite. But actually, what, what has happened, it's been horrible, obviously, and many people are suffering economically. But so many men I've been speaking to have, who, who considered that their job was kind of too important for them to do remotely, or to do flexibly, have completely changed, completely changed. There was one guy, I spoke to him in the summer and he considers himself quite important and he admitted that and he said a week before the lockdown I would have told you there was absolutely nowhere I could do my job remotely and a week after he'd emailed his boss explaining that this was so much more efficient here are all the reasons why the only reasons reason that it was worse is that the coffee wasn't as good or something like that and so now he will not be returning to the office. He may do kind of check-in days. But so I think this lockdown has kind of wrenched us forward in a way. We were fumbling towards a post-patriarchal ways of having work-life balance. There were companies who were starting to offer men six months paternity leave. It was gradually changing. But hopefully, to be optimistic, this has kind of kicked us forward 10 years, I would say. Your points about paternity leave and maternity leave and, and sharing that and Scandinavia are so interesting because I think that whole area really highlights what a self-defeating species and model we've created. Because if you were designing this and you were saying, okay, I'm going to have a system where we collectively are productive and we'll call that working, and then we'll have a system where we grow as individuals and that our communities are upheld because we know that's good for us and our planet is looked after and all the other things that are just as important as work. You wouldn't then take away the bit that forms the next generation of good human beings, if you like. I'll, I'll be more specific there because there's a part of your book where you talk about the neuro dependency of needing biologically needing both parents there it's certainly in the formative years so what we're doing now is we're saying right we know there's a neurological need cognitive need for a baby for a child to have the input of both parents that's just out of our hands that's the way it is so what we're going to do is we're going to make it really difficult for one half of that equation to spend any meaningful time in that crucial developmental phase we're obviously stunting development for the child, but I believe we're also stagnating 
a part of, if I talk personally, a part of me that's developed by being a, a father, because I'm lucky I run my own business even pro, pre-COVID, that could be around, something has changed within me, something that's led me to do this podcast, for example, to do things that really matter. So actually, I've benefited as the man. And the idea that we go to work in an office and that we somehow develop as human beings in those environments is, is absolute nonsense. They are stagnation zones. You know, people are having a job which is basically hours and hours away from the family, which is good for their development, in favor of having meetings, meetings upon meetings and writing PowerPoints. You know, doing that for four years, you are going to get a less rounded worker, if you want to look at it in those terms, than somebody who's been allowed to develop based on their own impetus and values, integrated with the family, which we know is so good for them and the, and the child. And so the system we have created is, is one of stagnation, in my view. There's a lot of talent going to waste by not allowing people to be humans, to be people. And this is one of the biggest frustrations for me, is the idea that you go through the birth process, and obviously you're not giving birth, but you're supporting your partner. And in my case, our, our first son, my wife had a really difficult birth that went from woo-woo home birth to emergency cesarean over a period of six really fun days. And then two days later, I'm back in the office and you're not really, it's not really done for men to talk about what they've been experiencing. And it's, it's controversial to say this, but the evidence suggests that post traumatic stress is as prevalent in men as it is for women after after birth you know we we've we're there sharing the emotion if not the horrific physical process uh, and one of the most difficult parts of the book was actually spending time with these dads at an insurance company where they have equal parenting leave and they were just so happy their lives were so balanced. And you can, of course, you know, the, the mother is the prime carer in the early years in particular. But the father, if he's available to support the mother, as well as developing his relationship with his children, that's completely the benefit of that to him, to the children and to community in general is just incalculable. And Aviva, the company that has this policy, as well as a few of the silicon guys are doing it as well, they, they said that actually the, the men come back from their six months with renewed enthusiasm rather than dragging themselves in with what's just happened a week ago. And also, obviously, the benefit of having children, it's such a development, developmental experience you know, a, a mother comes back to work with all sorts of skills that she might not have had um, beforehand, not least dealing with sleep deprivation and all the rest of it. So I think if we accept, as you say, that we are mammals, we do reproduce and we need to allow time for that to happen, it would just be brilliant. There is, I think you talk about the cult of the individual and you know, the idea that we used to have, and again, back to hunter-gatherers, you know, we used to have the village bringing up the child, and now we're kind of fragmented as families. We are away from our nearest and dearest often, um, often driven by work. I think in, in certainly in my case, I came to London to work for the BBC. You, I presume, uh, you know, we're, we're near London for the Times, or maybe you're from London, but a lot of us are, are sort of away from our, our kin, that community has vanished, you know, and we're paying for that. Again, it's, it's poor design. <laughs> yeah. We know this is something that suits us as a species, and yet we have conspired to build these mega cities that pull people into them to work in, but leave them isolated. And corporate isolation is as big a deal as, as a lot of other problems. People turning up to work in a city they're not from, you know, not really connecting with people, having that affront, that kind of corporate veil over them so they're not really being themselves. That's a big problem. That compounds this issue of when you're a family and you're in that situation and you're in London, you're in a small house, but you don't know your neighbours, 
community is being shed. And I think that's something you talk about that we, we need to, and we talked about actionable stuff. That's something that we need to address, surely. It's a, it's, but it's such a macro thing. And the clearest indicator of that is the fact that everyone's uh, tarmacked their front gardens. And then if you look at the numbers, it's every decade, it's just got more and more ridiculous because the front garden used to be, and, and I've, let's not be too rose-tinted about this, but front gardens, everyone's out in the morning chatting. I am being rose-tinted about <laughs> it. But, you know, the, the house faced forwards out onto the street, and now we've, we've created car parks for our beloved cars that they go in the front, and the garden at the back is the way the house faces. So it is, I mean, it's, I don't know how you suddenly and easily put community back but while you were saying that i was just thinking yeah we have got these great big cities we are all you know traveling away from our community yes it does take a village to raise a child and we have lost that but now here i am working from home you're working from home it's such a dramatic change i mean what's going to happen to all those massive offices they've just opened another 90-story building in London. Who's gonna who's gonna be working there? They've got this vaccine now, so it might all go back to normal, which which would be great. But if it goes back to normal, normal, that's gonna be very bleak, I think. Yeah, we've got to learn from both the good and the bad of COVID. And I think this idea that we're able to reprioritize and maybe have a bit more time. I, I encourage people to take their commute for themselves. Because what I keep hearing is the opposite. People get up and they get straight into it. Wouldn't it be better to take that time and do something that aligns with your values? You know, go for that forest bathing. I like that. I'm going to use it. Just about woo-woo enough for me. And do the thing that, that, that nourishes you. Do the thing that you couldn't do before because you were stuck on a train and you could only listen to your headphones. So suddenly we've got, we've got opportunity. Yeah, so you're not taking this to the extreme where you're suggesting that people should kind of find a very small cramped space (laughs) and find a stranger's armpit to nestle (laughs) under for 45 minutes. We're just taking that time for ourselves. Actually, I would say that for, for a long time when the kids were very young, that hour commute was my time, Yeah, actually. The transition from work to home, little tin of gin and tonic and a few deep breaths and then I was I was ready for what the next shift I have a friend who he was working in an office then he was working from home and he used to get the train to a stop have a coffee and then get the train back to signify to his tiny brain that he was now in work mode so it's it's really interesting to hear hear that that that's your advice because I, I certainly for the first few weeks at least of this pandemic I was going straight from from home to work in about 20 seconds and yeah. I loved it but you do need to have a break it's a good opportunity isn't it to do something actionable with the extra time we've got I want to kind of round off by digging into the the subject we touched on earlier which is digital and smart devices. You outline something that happens to me, and I think everyone, I'll say everyone who's listening to this, will resonate with this. You outline this idea of, as we've tried to become smarter, and even the use of the word smart is a really interesting you know, piece of vocabulary, because as we've tried to become smarter, all we've done is actually become dumber. And the reason is, is because if let's go back to this whole idea of what's good for us as a species, you know, aligning with values, doing things in nature, having community, all that kind of stuff, that the accepted, the real accepted norms beyond the man-made stuff we've built up. And we say, right, that's what we need to be doing as a species. That's how we'll flourish. That's how we're going to survive on this planet. What you're doing instead is you're taking, in your example, a thermostat. I've just bought that thermostat that you talked about, actually. I wish I'd read your book first. Oh, no. I've turned off learning mode, but I'm fearful now. It's going to come up at 3 a.m. I'm waking up in a, in a panic that it's going to come on and blast me out. But you, you take a thermostat, and instead of it being something that you set and then never think about again, 
you know, I'm sure my parents, my dad rewired our house in the 70s. He would have he would have put the thermostat in and not thought about it ever again. Instead of that, we've now got a thing that wants to take over, that wants to tell you when to heat the house. This sounds funny, but it's a bigger issue. It wants to tell you when to heat your house. It wants to send you notifications. I cannot abide notifications. It's so hard to turn them all off, these devices that we use. It wants a piece of your life. And the reason it wants to do all this is not because it's, it's inquisitive, I believe. Yes, there will be some people who've developed this thinking, oh, this might make life easier. It actually does the opposite. But it wants to do all that because it's got to justify its place on Amazon or your purchasing decision. It's got to justify it by saying, I can do this. I'm the latest tech. You really want me, aren't I shiny? The problem with that model is, it, again, we are designing without our best interests at heart. We are designing for 25-minute holds on, on phones. We are designing for having to talk to a chatbot when they're talking to seven other people and it takes 12 minutes to do a one-minute chat. You know, we're designing for having to upgrade and having it doesn't work. My Sonos doesn't work at the moment because I don't know why. I don't know why. Mm. So I can't listen to music, whereas I could have just put a thing on a vinyl and listened to music. So this digital distraction is probably too light a word. It's, it's a digital hammer in our lives means we can't relax. And, you know, we're already stressed because half the notifications are telling us that we haven't done something, emails or whatever. The other half of social media telling us we're not good enough, pretty enough, strong enough, successful enough. So we can't relax as it is. Now we can't relax because these devices, which we never thought about, are now in our lives. We can't sleep. It's too much. Right. <laughs> it's, it's too much. There, there was a survey, I think it was done in 2005. Some scientists hooked up some people and measured how long it took them to recover from a distraction. Right. So back then, that was pre the I world we now live in. So if an email arrives whilst you're trying to write something or think about something, and they found it takes 15 minutes to, so if something interrupts you, it takes you 15 minutes to get back to what you were doing. And with the internet of things, there isn't a 15 minute period in most people's days where you wouldn't be distracted by a notification. And that blimming smart thermostat, which uh, I really, if, if you do anything else, I would just right now, or as soon as we finish talking, I would go and put it in the bin. I know you've spent 100 quid, which is ridiculous, but just go and put it in the bin. Because apart from interrupting you the whole time, and, make, and, and it does this whole thing where it awards you points and then tells you how you're doing compared to your neighbors. So it's doing this whole us and them thing as well. It's also collecting data. So it knows when you're in the house and when you're not, so it can sell you more stuff. I mean, it's just, you're buying that entirely so someone else can work out how to sell you more stuff. So I would just go and get it and put it in the bin right now. The self-help guru shtick on all of this is, I find quite annoying as well, even though I'm now doing it. it they always say, make sure you have no phones in the bedroom, turn off everything after seven o'clock, have time away from your phone. And to most fearful midlife or younger people, the idea of not being on your phone, not being available if, for example, you get an email from a boss or one of them calls or whatever it is, is, is worrying because we've created a situation where you cannot not be contactable. Our office is as far away as our phone is, which is why in France they've, and certain German companies, they now switch all this stuff off. They force companies to turn things off. I think we will get to the point where that happens, but we do need a big organizational change it's all very well the arianas of the world saying i never have a phone in my bedroom but you're all right you've done it you know you you can tell your staff i'm not available after seven o'clock but for the rest of us it's it's a trickier tightrope what isn't tricky roan is you 
getting up at the end of this <laughs> with and that putting that <laughs> firm, yeah that to be that would be that would be that's if we were going to have a box at the end of a chapter it would involve getting a hammer getting that thermostat <laughs> and smashing it to pieces proper therapy that so matt on that note i just want to really thank you for joining me today i've really enjoyed it i only got through half of it but i think it's a very valuable half i love the way the conversation went and i just want to wish you all the best Thank you. I've had a great time. And as arranged, we'll do this every Monday morning. <laughs> you say nice, nice things to me, and then I get on with my horrific week. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Hi, Rowan here again. I just wanted to ask a simple favour. Now, since I set out to do this podcast series, my ambition has always been to provide a new narrative a different storyline that gives people permission to act on their own terms. A message that's perhaps counter to the accepted norms, accepted norms that maybe don't serve us. And I'm doing this because I believe, in fact I know, there are people who are unsatisfied with the way things work at the moment. What's expected of them, what's going on around them, what's going on in the world, what they need to do every day just to make a living and survive. Now I believe that everyone has the right to live and work from a place of purpose. And so I'm trying to get this message out to the benefit of as many people who need to hear it as possible. So I wanted to ask you, if you find these podcasts useful, whether you'd be willing to recommend self Centered to just one other person that you think might benefit from listening this week. I'd really appreciate it. I hope they'll appreciate it. I hope you'll feel good for doing it. And I'd just like to thank you again for listening and supporting the series so far.